Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. In the book of Leviticus, God demands of us to create a holy society. Not simply that we honor and revere our parents or keep Shabbat or desist from idolatry or follow sacrificial rules, but also that we ensure that we provide for the widow, the orphan, and the needy, and to do so in a fashion that guards their human dignity, that we deal with each other with honesty and integrity, that we don't take advantage of the weak or disempowered or the stranger, but that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Moses demands of us in the book of Deuteronomy, justice, justice shall you pursue. And later the prophets pick up this call with eloquent exhortations to remember the oppressed. Each year on Yom Kippur, we read the words of the prophet Isaiah, who says, No, this is the fast I desire, to unlock fetters of wickedness and untie the cords of the yoke, to share your bread with the hungry, and to take the wretched poor into your home when you see the naked to clothe them. Luriana Kabbalah requires of us to participate in acts of tikkun, to repair and heal the brokenness of the world. And later this came to be embraced by the general admonition tikkun olam, to repair the world. Where did this preoccupation with justice come from? Why has this been so rooted in Jewish identity? Well, in large part, it is because we as Jews know what it is to be the stranger, to be poor, to be vulnerable. We are sensitive to the plight of the oppressed and outcast because we ourselves know what it is to be oppressed and outcast. As Brett Stevens writes, Jewish concepts of justice and social justice have been entwined not only because of our religious traditions, but also because of our historical experience. Because our struggle for individual justice as Jewish persons has been predicated on a collective struggle for justice as a Jewish people. Social justice for Jews has historically been at least as much about self-preservation as it is about altruism. And at the same time, we wonder if our focus on tikkun olam has made for a diminished Judaism. As Stevens also wrote, social justice may be a foundational biblical value, but it is neither the only nor the central value. There is so much more to Judaism than simply practicing social justice— And real social justice work for us as Jews needs to be rooted in the particularity of our Jewish tradition. To help us understand the place of social justice in Judaism today, we have no better teacher than Rabbi Jonah Pesner, our guest. Rabbi Pesner has led the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism in Washington, D.C. since 2015 and serves as Senior Vice President of the Union for Reform Judaism. Over the course of his wonderful career, he has led and supported campaigns for racial justice, economic opportunity, immigration reform, LGBTQ equality, human rights, and a variety of other causes. Named one of the most influential rabbis in America by Newsweek magazine, he is an inspirational leader and tireless advocate for social justice. And it's such a pleasure to have him with us today. Rabbi Jonah Pesner, welcome to Essential Questions. Thank you, Rabbi Dan Levin. It's an honor to be here. So there was a beautiful quotation that I read from Rabbi Israel Salanter, who wrote, When I was a young man, I wanted to change the world. But I found it was difficult to change the world, so I tried to change my country. And when I found I couldn't change my country, I began to focus on my town. However, I discovered that I couldn't change the town, so 
as I grew older, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I realize the only thing I can change is myself. But I've come to recognize that if long ago I had started with myself, then I could have had an impact on my family. And my family and I could have made an impact on our town. And that, in turn, could have changed the country. And we could all indeed have changed the world. So thinking about that, I wonder a bit about the whole project of social justice. And what is social justice? And what makes the pursuit of social justice a Jewish enterprise? Oh, Dan, talk about asking the essential questions. Um, thank you for that frame, and thank you for invoking Israel Salanter and that beautiful quotation that I, I adore, and that I actually think you embody, you know, in the way that you lead Temple Bethel of Boca Raton and the way you lead our Reformed Jewish movement, because you always teach, and I listen carefully, that we root our public work for the common good to make the world better in our deep and enduring Jewish values in the midot, in the kind of essential learnings that evolved uh, over thousands of years of revelation, whether it's from, you know, the moment at Sinai and the ancient scriptures through the rabbinic insights and wisdoms and the voice of the prophet, to the kind of personal interaction we have in the moment today, that we have these values that flow from that tradition and every individual is making choices. How do my values that I learned from my family and my parents, that I've learned from my synagogue and my rabbis, that I learned from my tradition in the world, impact every choice that I make? And those choices start very individually. The way I treat my body and my soul um, with tikkun nefesh and tikkun haguf, like the repair of the body and the repair of the soul. And then the tikkun haolam, the world around. And that starts with the family and the community and the congregation. And if we actually are all doing that work, then collectively we can ask, okay, so what is our obligation to make Florida a better state or the United States a better country or Israel a better homeland? So I love that frame. And, you know, so then the bottom line is like, what is social justice? To me, it isn't some top-down political agenda that starts with issues um, like abortion access or gun violence prevention, though it does. And I know for your folks in Florida, those two issues are very top of mind, you know, from the Parkland shooting onward and the rollbacks of abortion rights. I've talked to members of your community who are extremely agitated about those things, but they don't start there. They start with like their deeply Jewishly rooted sense that the world as it is doesn't have to be a place of suffering. They as individuals can be people who flourish and feel love and spirituality and joy, and all people should be able to feel that. And so they enter into those issues from the bottom up with their community, with their rabbi, with their clergy. Does that make sense? It does. It does in many ways. So thinking about Jewish values, midot, and, and other kinds of things, when we often think about Judaism, we think about a covenant. We think about 613 mitzvot, and we think about all of their interpreted applications as they evolve over the centuries. And then you have the advent of the Reform Movement that says, well, those are guides, right? The idea that the commanding voice of God is more authentically heard from within than from the outside. So how does social justice emerge out of that covenant, that sense of commandedness that is rooted in each of us individually, but also in us collectively and nationally in a particular way as the Jewish people? Because, you know, when we're recording this, we're observing the counting of the Omer, 
the time between our exodus, our liberation from the enslavement of Egypt to the time that we'll stand at Sinai and receive the covenant, the Torah scroll, literally the words, but also the thousands of years of ongoing revelation. So, you know, whenever you, you out there, or the listeners are hearing this, we probably will have either just finished counting or we'll have just, you know, observed Shavuot, the festival of receiving the Torah. And to me, that's the story inside of what you just described, Dan, is that we have experienced suffering and oppression. We know what lack of freedom is, what the inability to have Shabbat is like. Um, when God says, you know, to Pharaoh, let, let my people go and Moses and Aaron and Miriam, God says, so that they can worship me, like so that they can uh, be spiritual Jews and their whole selves in freedom. But then the story doesn't end there, right? With the parting of the seas and the emancipation, it culminates at Mount Sinai entering into obligation. So for Jews, freedom is not the ability not to do. For us, it's the freedom to be obligated to do. And the content of what we have to do as we stand there receiving Torah, Torah is in essence a collection of stories and rules. And so the Reformed Jew, I think, then looks at the thousands of years of stories and traditions that have flown from that moment and says, well, we are obligated, right? To stand at Sinai, to be a Jew is to say, I must. You see a person who is suffering, you lift them up. You encounter a moment of spirituality, you say a blessing. But Reformed Jews also understand that for thousands of years, every Jew in every moment has had to stand again at Sinai, as Judith Pulaski once said, and hear the covenant, we hear it, um, and then respond to it by doing in the way that makes sense with authenticity, rooted in thousands of years of tradition, but also that makes sense for our own individual autonomy and, and our lives and the collective demands of our community. So again, knowing some people in your community who are really organizing around abortion rights or gun violence prevention, for them, that is the way to live the covenant and the mitzvot, the obligations that they're called to by their reading of Torah in modernity. And there are others for whom it's more about spiritual practice, being part of Jewish tradition, teaching their children Jewish life or studying Torah themselves, or it may be all of the above. Um, but that to me is how Reformed Jews kind of live in the covenant. So how do you, as someone who has devoted his life to the practice and the promotion of social justice, how do you define social justice? And are there projects of social justice that do not rise out of Jewish tradition that you sort of say, you know, that's not our project, that's not our program, that's not what we as Jews are called to do? Or is the entirety of that social justice agenda Jewish because of what social justice is? Yeah, I think I, I once heard, uh, I think it was Daniel Hartman at the Hartman Institute say, if you wanted, in, when we talk in English, when we're trying to think about like Jewish authenticity often, like translate the words into Hebrew and see what you get. So like there's this concept of Sedek Hebrati, which is the Hebrew of social justice, but you won't find Sedek Hebrati in the Torah. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, social justice has now become this kind of um, polarizing. It's like CRT and, you know, social justice warrior. And it's a weaponization that as uh, part of the polarization of this moment. So to me, I like remind myself, I came to this work not as an activist or as a political person. I came to this stand as a Jew, right? My work is deeply rooted in the experience I had growing up as a Jewish person in lower Manhattan, where the synagogue and the rabbi and the community was like my home away from home. It was where my family thrived and flourished. 
we were very much in the New York City of the 1970s, you know, which was swirling in an interfaith multiracial reality. But, you know, our center was the temple. My father died very suddenly when I was entering high school. And two things happened, Dan. You know, one is that the Jewish community saved my spiritual life, right? Rabbis opened up a whole world for me of spiritual rootedness and love in the face of terrible tragedy. And, you know, the kind of youth group weekends and camp experiences and traveling to Israel gave meaning and purpose to my life. That's why I, I doubled down on my own Jewishness and also became a rabbi. But the other thing that happened was, you know, my mother became a single working mother. We lived in affordable housing. I went to a public school in the Bronx and I witnessed unspeakable suffering in the poverty and inequity that was the New York of the 70s and 80s. And I had to then harmonize the deeply rooted Jewish teachings and values that I was getting in my synagogue and in our youth movement with what I was witnessing in the suffering of the South Bronx. And that when I learned the language of tikkun ha'olam, the repair of the world, which is, I think, related to tikkun ha'nefesh, the repair of the individual soul, I was called to action and to say, okay, so Judaism can't just be saving the life of one nice Jewish boy whose father died. It has to be about saving all lives and in a, building a, a society where all people can flourish and, and live in the vision of, you know, a tikkun olam b'malchut shaddai. People often don't use the last phrase, right? It's repairing the world b'malchut shaddai, which I guess literally means in the sovereign or kingdom of God. But I take that metaphorically to be like in a glorious vision of a heavenly place, right? What, what does heaven look like or the world to come? It's like a place where everything is at peace. It's Shabbat. It's, it's, it's ideal for all. Does that make sense? There is so much in Jewish tradition that commands that we look beyond the boundaries of our individual selves. You know, obviously, there's the very famous passage from Pirkei Avot where Hillel says, If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But if I'm only for myself, then what am I? And I think the reason why Hillel was a genius was because he didn't answer those questions. He just posed them, right? He just sort of said, you have to figure out how you maintain some sense of a balance. And in thinking about that, you know, I wonder about your experience in Manhattan, wondering why it was that the plight of people living in the South Bronx mattered to you as a teenage Jewish boy. You're not from the South Bronx. That's not your identity. What is it about expanding beyond the boundaries of our own particularity as Jews or as Americans or whatever ways in which we define our particularity, what is it in our tradition that calls us to expand beyond those boundaries? I just love that you invoked Hillel's questions um, and that they aren't answered, um, because that's the frame in which I think about this very specifically. And here I want to, B'Shem Amro, in the name of my teacher, invoke Marshall Gans, who is a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and has been a mentor for me for 20 years, who teaches Hillel's three questions. You know, he was the son of a conservative rabbi who dropped out of Harvard to go work with Cesar Chavez in organizing farm workers, and then ultimately made his way back uh, to finish his degree at Harvard and, and was trying to make sense of his own kind of theology of organizing, particularly organizing low-income people to make the world better and more just, but also rooted in his own Jewishness. You know, he was very much informed by the rabbinic upbringing that he, that he you know, flourished in in his Jewishness. And so he asked 
what do Hillel's three questions mean for us? And what he argues is every person has a story of themselves, right? Their Rabbi Dan Levin has a, his story, his why, what brings him to this work. But that there is around us a collective story, and you only understand it when you actually get into dialogue and relationship with others to surface and hear everyone's story of why, and then step back and say, well, what does this collectively call us to? So I say that as like this you know, young, shrimpy, white Jewish kid growing up on the number four train in New York City, who was often you know, kind of the only white kid in an all black and brown environment, asking, well, what is my, and I didn't say this back then, Dan, obviously it's my interpretation later, but I had my own individual story, both of loss and of suffering, but, of, but of also of success and survival. Um, and here are all these others, and many of them also suffering. And how do I relate and, and intersect with that? And then what Marshall uh, then argues is once you kind of get into dialogue about a collective story, that's when it's, if not now, when, there is an urgency of now. Once you've actually heard from others what drives them and particularly what is holding them back and what their source of suffering is, especially if they're not Jewish, right? If you're across lines and you're hearing from the other, you're obligated. You can't put it back. And you know this as a rabbi, Dan, because I'm sure you have people coming to your office all the time who tell you stories of what they're going through. You can't just put it back in a box. You don't just nod your head. You kind of ask yourself, well, what do we do? I'll, I'll give you a good example. We worked very hard in the 19, late 90s and early 2000s on healthcare reform in Massachusetts that wound up becoming the template for um, national health reform. And I'll never forget one conversation I was having with a member of my synagogue. I was a pulpit rabbi who was sharing how scared he was that his daughter was turning 25 and was going to have to go off the family health plan. She was an artist, and so she didn't have an employer, and she had pre-existing conditions, and he was petrified that she would get sick and die. He couldn't afford to buy her private health insurance. And what he needed for me at that moment was not a pastoral kind of, you know, we were trained to say, oh, it sounds like you're frustrated. He's like, yeah, I'm frustrated, but I need health care for my daughter. What are we going to do? So to me, it's, it's not about a top-down political agenda. It's really more about, as Jews, hearing from one another, what are our relationships and our Jewish values called us to do? And we're not alone, right? It's if, if I'm for myself alone, what am I? And so we have to ask that question of others that are outside the Jewish community. By the way, one last thing I'll just say, I also love about Hell's Three Questions. He doesn't say, if I'm for myself alone, who am I? He says, if I'm for myself alone, what am I? I believe Hillel is telling us that if we aren't concerned about the other, then we dehumanize ourselves. We become an object rather than a human. Does that make sense? Absolutely makes sense. And and I resonate so strongly to that sense of inner calling. And then I'm thinking also about how you talked about in your work as a pulpit rabbi advocating for healthcare reform. And I was meeting with someone recently who is a prospective member of our congregation, and they were impressed by a lot of the different programs we were offering and all kinds of things that I was explaining about what makes our congregation special. And then he sort of looked at me and he said, so is this congregation political? <laughs> and is there a lot of politics here? And I don't think he was talking, obviously, about the board. He was talking about <laughs> politics. Right, right. Right? So I guess I would ask you, you know, what is the role that politics should play in a synagogue? I think about how 
you know, our synagogue and many are a spiritual home for a mixed multitude, as the Bible describes it, right? There are people in our congregation, old, young, men, women, people from all kinds of different ethnic backgrounds, and people who have liberal politics and people who have conservative politics. And is there a, a danger when the synagogue sort of wanders into political advocacy? There's definitely a danger, and we should talk about it. Um, I have a wonderful rabbi and teacher named Dan Levin who was asked this question at a house meeting at Temple Beth Ellen Boker Atone, and I sat and listened, and I thought, wow, how, how is Rabbi Levin going to handle this? And um, he was actually quite brilliant. He looked at this community and said, um, we're obviously not partisan. We don't you know, pick political parties. We don't you know, engage in partisan or polarizing politics. And we are an institution of deeply rooted Jewish values, and our Jewish values call us to action. Um, and so when there are things that this congregation cares about rooted in our Jewish values, then we'll do them. And that isn't, you know, partisanship. And I thought it was a great answer. I will also add, there's a real difference between being partisan and being political. Political, you know, comes from the Athenian kind of notion of the polis. Politics comes from the Greek word polis, and polis just meant city. And the root of it is when decisions would get made for the sake of the city, there'd be a gathering of the people. Now, obviously, it was only people, men, and only men who were free men. Um, but in historical context, it was quite democratic, where all free men would gather, debate, discuss, and decide, and make decisions. So to be political is just to make decisions on behalf of the community. Synagogues, by nature, are political institutions. Let's just be honest. If we put a sign on the front of the building saying, we stand with Israel in her quest for peace, that is a political act. Uh, if we open a soup kitchen, it's a political act because it's saying that it is an obligation of faith institutions to provide for the poor. That may or may not come at the expense of government providing for the poor, but it is a political act. So the question is wh where and when shall, or if you go before the zoning board and say, we want to expand our footprint and advocate for, you know, a, a you know, some kind of weight variance in building permits or zoning permits. These are all political acts. So the question then is just, well, when are we going to be political and why? And that's the struggle. I think just congregations have to make that decision. And it's an art, not a science. Some congregations are able to lean into political activity that can be more controversial in some people's eyes. My guidance here is we organize from the bottom up and get people into dialogue with each other because we want to act around the things that will bring us together as opposed to things that will divide us. And we don't need, synagogues don't need to do everything. They need to do the things that make sense for that synagogue. That said, what I loved about what, you know, what you said, Dan, in that house meeting was you were implicitly acknowledging there are always lines and boundaries. And there are times when, you know, a synagogue will make a choice to be part of, you know, as many of the Florida congregations right now, for example, are being um, part of the uh, Florida coalition that's going to put together a ballot initiative to codify abortion access into law. Many synagogues are part of that. Many of our rabbis are plaintiffs in some of the lawsuits. And the synagogues are making a choice and saying, this is something that we feel strongly about. And members can decide. We, you don't have to love everything about the synagogue. And if this for you is the thing that's going to keep you out, if you love the music and you love the rabbis and you love the you know, um, the brotherhood, but you don't like our position on abortion, then you have to make a decision. 
as long as it's defensible, that it's really rooted in Jewish values, and there was a good faith process to really be curious and interested in the membership and their deeply rooted values and, and uh, stories, then I think we have an obligation to be political. And I think it's interesting that you discern the difference between political and partisan. Political means acting out within the larger society in which you live and trying to bring that society to the best vision of itself. And guided by the teachings of our tradition is the way that we as Jews do that. That's right. And so if we read in the book of Leviticus in chapter 19 that when you harvest your field, you have to leave the edges and the gleanings on the ground for the poor and the vulnerable people in the community. You learn from that that, hey, we have to feed the poor, and we have to feed them in a way that guards and sanctifies their individual dignity while we do that. That it, And it doesn't matter whether that person is only from our own people or from the surrounding community in which we live, because we are obligated to love the stranger in as much as we're obligated to love each other in our own particularity. At the same time, right, in order to address any of the different kinds of mandates to make our world a better place, that inevitably requires a policy right, choice. Right. There is, I think, potentially a danger in advocating certain policies in response to a social justice mandate. So, for example, I'm thinking about how there were policies when the COVID pandemic was raging that said we have to close our schools and we have to shutter businesses. And then there were others that argued that those policies would stunt the education and growth of children almost irreparably, and that you can die from more than just a pandemic and a virus. You can also die from poverty, and that if people have to shutter their businesses and they lose all their income, the damage that that imposes could be even worse than the disease itself. That's right. Yeah. So at the same time, I also think about how for years— Jews who believed in the ideals of social justice pursued political socialism as the answer, while at the same time many would argue that socialism kind of stunts innovation and economic growth that would actually better help poor societies from a non-socialist perspective. So how do we pursue social justice, which inevitably requires policy choices, while at the same time recognizing that there may be conservative policy choices th that actually achieve a social justice answer and not just perchance the liberal answer that seems to be in many ways sort of the default. And that is the essential question, because everything I said before about being political, it's when the rubber hits the road, as you just said, reasonable people can agree or disagree about the particular policy as an expression of Jewish values. And one of my favorite conversations is with people of diverse political backgrounds who are not in the kind of polarized game of, you know, talking points and positions, but rather in good faith want to wrestle with Jewish values and public policy and disagree about what that policy ought to look like. And then let's have that conversation. Let me give you a great example where I really learned the beauty of the possibility when you actually are open that your Jewish values or whatever your moral tradition is 
might actually show up differently as a matter of public policy than when you walked in the room. In the room, I referenced before the Massachusetts campaign for healthcare access. So I chaired a coalition of around 50 faith groups. It was black churches, Catholic parishes, the Muslim community, et cetera. And we knew we had about 500,000 people in our churches and synagogues and mosques who didn't have healthcare. So for us, it was a campaign about A, our members who are struggling, who are dying from preventable illnesses and uh, for other reasons because they didn't have healthcare. And we all had different faith traditions that made a demand. Like for us, Dan is Jews, like we hear Maimonides very loudly and clearly, one of the great rabbinic sages of all time, who, who kind of codified into Jewish law that um, providing the health care and medical care is a primary obligation. It's a mitzvah, essentially. So, and each faith tradition had its own version. So we went and met with Governor Romney and his team over the course of months. We made both the moral case and we also made the grassroots, you know, electoral case. We said, you know, these are your constituents. They vote. We're religious and moral people. Do you believe that people ought to have access to health care? And people may know that Governor Romney, now Senator Romney, is a deeply religious person, a very spiritual man. And he absolutely was with us and said, as a religious person, I believe everybody should have health care access and everybody should thrive. So we said to him, great, what would you be for? What would you champion? And he came to us and said, if we developed a policy that was a market-driven solution, what I won't do is advocate a policy that will be another government program. So we went back to our coalition and some of the kind of health advocacy people thought we were nuts because they were really committed to a government run kind of single payer approach. And we said, look, we just want our people to have health care access. And so Romney Care, in essence, was a program that leveraged the free market. It leveraged the insurers and the providers and just got more people access. And it was a huge success. It, it went in like 2004. And if you go back now over the 20 years since Romney Care, Massachusetts has some of the highest rates of um, coverage and successful medical outcomes. And of course, it became the paradigm. Romney Care became Obamacare. Unfortunately, in the crazy world of polarized politics, as soon as Romney Care became Obamacare, then it became kind of a, a you know the third rail even though it was a conservative approach, right? It was a market-driven conservative approach. But the reason I'm telling you the story is we really were open to the idea that Governor Romney's application of enduring faith values to a question of public policy might be the right public policy. And at the end of the day, he was right. And I think the idea of being open to different partners in achieving a policy answer in some ways comes out of, you know, one of the great quotations that animates social justice work, you know, from Micah, right, who says, what is it that God asks of you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, humbly, humbly in humbly. God's Amen. presence? I, I think the humility piece is often what's lacking. I see in so many different circles where there's all kinds of moral signaling and sort of ways in which people are scolded for not being aware enough of the proper lingo of the moment or sort of a sanctimonious judgment that sometimes comes from those who seem to know better, an arrogance that sometimes makes it hard for people to want to, you know, subscribe to a movement that is trying to do something rooted in Jewish tradition. Do you see that in your work, that, that sort of you know, smugness of we know better? 
Oh, not only I'm complicit, and I just want to be transparent with your listeners because I it, this is what I love about this format is it's a thoughtful, deep conversation, right? What's hard is if you read my Twitter feed or if you read statements that come out from the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, which I'm honored to lead, often we wind up in a very kind of 140 character or, you know, terse public statement modality that feels arrogant if you disagree. And I and I, I have, you know, I'm sure you've had, Dan, you know, a member of your congregation walk into your office with a printout of a rack email and say, who, you know, what is this? And they doesn't, this doesn't represent me. And you've had to have the thoughtful dialogue with that member to really hear from them. By the way, one of my favorite things to do, I really love this, is when a rabbi calls me and says, a member of my congregation is frustrated with the position of the of the reform movement around an issue, whatever, I say, put that person in touch with you immediately. I want to hear their perspective. I want to know their story. And I got to tell you, Dan, like nine out of 10 times, I walk away with somebody who doesn't agree with me, but who really I care about and maybe even cares about me. And that's what I think sacred Judaism and that humility actually can look like. So yes, I have it all the time. Here's an example though, where it really gets hard. Can I get, can I kind of lift up a tough one? Sure. Yeah. So it's really become normative in many of the circles of the reform movement to share gender pronouns. Okay. To say I'm Rabbi Jonah Pesner. I use the he, him series. Certainly within our youth movement, it's like completely normal. Kids today are very used to saying, you know, I'm he, him, she, her, they, them. For a lot of folks, it's really alienating. They don't either, they don't understand it or it bespeaks a kind of a woke quote unquote agenda. And we should talk about that word in a minute. Um, and I even had one person come to me and say, I'm not, I'm okay with trans people, but like you're alienating, you know, smart people. And what I, what I wrestle with, Dan, is to me, it's not about, you know, performative acts. To me, it's about, we now have data that show that teenagers are three times as likely to commit suicide if their gender pronouns are not recognized. That when kids get misgendered, then they, trans kids are struggling and are dying. And now we're seeing all these policies that are assault on trans health for children. And I know what the consequences are. Kids take their own lives. And so what I said to that person was, listen, this is not to me just some kind of theoretical debate of public policy. This is like our kids' lives are at, are at stake. But I understand it. I know it's hard. You know, people are wrestling with these issues, and we want to call people in and, you know, not call people out. But I think it's hard. I want to talk a little bit about how Jews look at race and all of the conversations about race in America. So in so much of Jewish tradition— there is this idea that a human being is more than the vessel that carries the soul within it. That, in fact, in so much of Jewish spiritual tradition, there was this idea of bitul yesh, the nullification of the outer self, so that you could actualize the authentic, pure inner self. And when I was growing up, we were taught that you're not supposed to look at a person as a white person or a black person or an Asian person or an Arab person. You were just supposed to look at a person. And then in Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he writes the following. He says, the most threatening racist movement is not the alt-right's unlikely drive for a white ethnostate, but the regular Americans' drive for a race-neutral one. The construct of race neutrality actually feeds white nationalist victimhood 
by positing the notion that any policy protecting or advancing non-white Americans toward equity is reverse discrimination. And I understand that idea that he's positing about this idea of reverse discrimination, but I'm also sort of curious from a Jewish standpoint about how we look at race. There's an awful lot of work that the RAC has done to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of the things that you and I talked about was that in advertising for the internships at the Religious Action Center as legislative assistants, there was actually a stated preference for students that came from perhaps more marginal backgrounds, whether it was Jews of color or LGBTQ plus or other kinds of, of marginalized or historically marginalized groups. But at the same time, I'm also reminded of a conversation I had with a neighbor who was a public school teacher. She's from Indian descent, and she was at a DEI training at her school, and they talked about her as being a brown person, and she was deeply offended by that. She says, I'm not a brown person. I'm me. Don't call me a brown person. Right, right. And so I'm wondering, like, you know, from your experience as a rabbi, where does race and the sort of current focus on DEI fit into our Jewish heritage, our Jewish teachings? Where is that rooted in our tradition? No, it's a very thoughtful analysis, Dan. Thank you for laying it out that way. And uh, I'm honored to kind of live in the complexity of it. Um, on the one hand, as you point out, the world as it should be is the world in which, you know, this Jewish notion of we're all a descendant of the same first human that God created. And so we're all, you know, essentially human. Then the rabbis build on that and say, you know, that first human was created from, you know, red clay, black soil, yellow loam, white sand. That is to say that we all have all of it inside of us and that it's, you know, part of the beauty of God's creation that there are then people who look uh, different colors, different, you know, phenotypical racial qualities. And there's an argument that race is a construct anyway, and there's nothing essential about it, right? All of that said, the world as it actually is, is a world then of thousands of years of human history in which societies, structures, oppressors, and, you know, actors in history weaponized the phenotypical characteristics of race. And for those that don't know the phenotypical meaning, what people look like, right? So blackness gets invented in order to subjugate one people by people who phenotypically look white. And, you know, there's the incredible Isabel Wilkerson book called Cast, which I highly recommend for people to read. I know you lifted up Kendi's work. What I love about Wilkerson's book, Cast, she looks at caste, meaning, you know, kind of racialized leveling in society in three contexts, African, South African apartheid, modern India, and German Nazism and Hitler. And it's very helpful for the Jewish reader to understand the creation and weaponization of racial categories, even though they're constructs, in order to then subjugate the people or you know, whether it's for enslavement in order to, you know, take advantage of their labor or just to control a population or as the creation of the Jewish kind of racialized myth in order to have a scapegoat, you know, and somebody to you know do what's happened to us through our history. So in the world as it is, that's the reality. So then the question is, what do you do with that? And where I appreciate Kendi is if we all operate as if everything was equal and everything was the same, then and it's like, well, I'm colorblind, then it would uh, ignore the structural 
inequality that we all live with and the reality around us. So let me apply that to the question of recruiting Jews of color and other people from marginalized communities to the Religious Action Center's Legislative Assistant Program. We realized consistently over the years, most of the people that were applying, in fact, overwhelmingly, the number of people that were applying for the fellowship were white and were heterosexual. Frankly, also not from low-income backgrounds, but disproportionately um, kind of privileged from higher socioeconomic backgrounds. And we asked ourselves why. And when you look at the bigger structures and patterns, what we realize is there's like these self-perpetuating inequalities. Like, for example, if you grew up, you know, in our movement, then you're more likely to have somebody who knows you tap you on the shoulder and recruit you. So if you are a family that either chose Judaism or grew up low income, so you couldn't afford to go to Jewish summer camp, or, you know, if you dropped out for a long time because of your gender identity and didn't feel welcome, you're more likely to not get that email or when you get the email, see yourself inside of that community. And so by going out, and by the way, the goal was to have a balanced class of legislative assistance, right? It was to have, you know, kind of representation across, which we've now been very successful over the last couple of years. We've really had a really diverse array that represents the actual Jewish community. 15% of the American Jewish community is not white, right? There are black Jews, there are Jews uh, of Asian, Asian American descent, there are Latino Jews, there are LGBTQIA Jews, there are Jews with disabilities. There was just an agitation that the legislative assistant classes didn't look like the diversity of the American Jewish community. And so by doing an intervention, by being intentional and saying we wanna actually rectify that, we wanna create equality and equity and not pretending all things are equal, then we were able to actually do an intervention. Another good application would be the conversation about reparations. The Reform Jewish Movement, I'm proud to say, was the first major religious denomination, a Jewish denomination, to uh, formally call for the reparations for the descendants of African slaves. Our resolution that passed overwhelmingly in our movement was really rooted in the Jewish experience of reparations after the Holocaust. The understanding that after the Holocaust, all things were not equal. We couldn't just all go back to things the way they were. There had to be some repair in order to equalize and give the Jewish community an opportunity to thrive again. So too, if you look at the 400 years of the history since the enslavement of African people and the Jim Crow that followed the emancipation and the various structures that created radical inequalities, the question is, what do we do to repair that? What I actually love about the reparations discussion, it's really about everybody thriving. It's not like, okay, so we're going to take from one group and give it to another, but it's like, how would society just flourish if we actually created more educational or more housing opportunities for communities that have had historic lack of equity or lack of access because of those historic patterns? Wouldn't we all thrive in a society where there was less poverty, where there was more flourishing because those marginalized communities with historic experiences of oppression had some form of investment? And wouldn't we all benefit from that investment? So anyway, that's that's my take on this very complex issue of race and identity in our country. And I appreciate that. And I resonate to so much of that and promote that. At the same time, I kind of also wonder, do you run the risk of alienating somebody who doesn't come from a marginalized background? So let's say I am a kid who is gung-ho for wanting to make a difference with my life. And I happen to be a male, cisgendered, upper-middle-class, suburban Jewish kid. And I read that application, and it says, we especially are looking for people who are not me. 
Does that then also perhaps signal that maybe I'm not welcome in that space, that maybe uh, this isn't for me? How do you do that work of making things look the way they do in the world so that there is that sense of equity and diversity while not being exclusive of somebody who doesn't check those other marginal boxes? It's a great question. And I think partly it is a question of messaging and communication so that that person gets brought in and called into a community as opposed to alienated. And I think it is an art. I think it's not so easy. We have to be super thoughtful. But I will say flipping it on its head, I say this as a cisgender, heterosexual, white guy who has enormous privilege, Dan, right? Like you, like me, we're, we're similar, right? We are charismatic and we're popular and we benefit from a lot of things. I don't want to be in a community where everybody looks like me, particularly because of historic patterns of exclusion. So I read that and I say, that's a group I want to be with. And I understand why, you know, because I have confronted some of these issues. I understand why I benefited a lot from my whiteness and my maleness. I'm going to be humble. I love that you framed Micah earlier, you know, as I pursue justice and love mercy, I'm also going to be a bit humble and know it's not always about me. So I want to sit at the table. I want to be in the room, but knowing that I've often been deferred to in the room or I get the head chair, I, I want to be in a place where I'm not always, you know, sitting at the head table. And so, you know, my hope is there's a way to communicate to that young person not only do you have a place here, but you'll want to be here because of our intentionality about a diverse and equitable community. Does that make sense? It does. It does. You know, I think that that piece in the DEI equation of inclusion is a really complicated one because on the on the one hand, there have always been historically people that get to live in the core. And there are people who historically have been pushed to the margins. And there is, I think, a compulsion within our tradition to take those people who have been on the periphery and bring them into the core because it enriches the core. So if you take a look at what has happened to Jewish spiritual life and Jewish understanding and thought in the 150 years or less in which we have deliberately brought women from the periphery of Jewish life into the core of Jewish life, my goodness, Judaism has been absolutely transformed by that, by taking people on the periphery who are gay, who were shunned, who were marginalized, who had to live in the closet and say, no, we want you to live openly, authentically, and form the households that you should form that subscribe to who you are authentically as a person has enriched our community enormously. But I wonder if there is, of course, a way to do that that doesn't make the person who was in the core feel like he now has to stand at the margins. And I appreciate your sense of, I don't always want to be the guy at the head table, but of course, one other element of privilege is to be able to say, I choose to not sit there. I choose to walk away, right? As opposed to, you're not actually welcome in the core. <laughs> and figuring out how you balance that to me is, is something that's really crucial, I think, to creating what is, to me, at least authentic inclusion. Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, I love that you rooted that reflection in kind of Jewish tradition and values. There's the great teaching from Hasidic literature 
about when Amalek attacked the Israelites, right? The first thing that happens to us when we get out of Egypt, we're you know, making our way to Mount Sinai and Amalek attacks us. And it says in the text, he picked off the stragglers at the rear. You know, he murdered our ancestors who were straggling behind. And what a, what a sin, what a hate it was. And that's why we blot out the name of Amalek. But there's this great Hasidic teaching that says, no, the sin wasn't Amalek's. The sin was Israel's, the Israelites, because we had let there be stragglers. Rather, to be Jewish is to center the most vulnerable and put them in the middle of the camp. And just to apply that to what I think the wisdom you just you just shared, nobody's worried about the feelings of the rest of the Israelites that the most marginalized people are now at the center. Right. And, you know, I'm just going to say the phrase white fragility. Right. There's a whole body of work around white, white fragility. And the, the worst extreme of that phenomenon is, you know, these parents that are now saying you can't teach history in my school. Forget about the, you know, the words that you CRT or whatever. It's irrelevant. It's really saying you, you can't teach the history of enslavement and the brutality of slavery and the terror of Jim Crow because I don't want my young white son to feel badly. Dan, like, do we worry about teaching the Holocaust because we don't want Christians and Germans to feel badly? Like, we just have to be honest about our history. And then if you know, you know, the organization facing history and ourselves, what I love about their kind of their pedagogy is they say, let's have an honest encounter with history. And then let's just ask, well, what does this mean for us today? And have a thoughtful conversation. And I, so I think a lot of people, if they're just brought into the reality of the history of disenfranchisement, why some people have been at the margins, and then collectively say, so what do we all have to do? What's our what's all of our responsibility to bring people in? By the way, the great Alana Kaufman, who runs the Jews of Color Initiative, which is a wonderful um, intervention to address the, the reality that though there are so many, so many tens of thousands of Jews of color in America, and yet they're so underrepresented in positions of leadership and in our communities, our congregations, and our camps. It's a great intervention. She she has you know often said the Reform Jewish movement has such a great track record around including interfaith families and as you described, women having full equality and leadership and the LGBTQIA community. And yet around race, we don't seem to be able to get there. And what does that tell you? I think people should be a little bit agitated that there seem it seems to be harder for us to get the race question right to look and feel as diverse as the reality of our demographics are when we've got it's you know we're not perfectly but we're further along around issues of gender equity and LGBTQIA inclusion. So thinking about how you framed that answer and looking at the story of Amalek and the Hasidic interpretation of it being actually arson not Amalekson I'm reminded of the the game that the sages played of what's the most important verse in the Torah. And, you know, there's the one where it says that Akiva says, you shall love your neighbor yourself. That's the essential one. And Benzoma says, no, it's uh, the idea that we're created in God's image. And then later in the 16th century, Rabbi uh, Judah Loeb, the Maharal of Prague, answers this question in his book, Nitzivot Olam, where he says, Benzoma claimed that the Shema, right, that's the most important verse. And then Benana said, no, the most important verse is, love your neighbor, your fellow as yourself, right? But then Shimon ben Pazi says, no, there's a more important verse, and that is, 
The first lamb you shall sacrifice in the morning, and the second lamb you shall sacrifice in the evening. <laughs> and then they say, Yehuda Hanasi said, nope, Ben Pazi's right. <laughs> huh? What? <laughs> right? Like, I can put, you know, on, you know, the, the cornerstone of any solid Jewish building, any of those other phrases. I can tell you at Temple Bethel on the cornerstone were not put in the first lamb you shall sacrifice in the morning. <laughs> but the question is, why is that the most important verse? And what the teaching is, is that it is that process of living a Jewish life in its traditional and ritual formulae as part of the covenant on a daily basis that actually feeds all the rest. And there is, I think, a worry that you hear from some that the social justice piece of what it is to be Jewish has become the defining piece of Judaism for too many people, and that we're losing a sense of Judaism that is actually rooted in Judaism and more of social justice as being the religion, and then we're going to find a value that we can fix on that like a post-it note or that we're going to sort of take the the social justice target and then we'll just draw a Jewish circle around it. And so is there a danger or how do you sort of, as someone who lives in that space as a rabbi who is made social justice work the focus of your professional and personal attention, I know this comes from such a deep-seated place for you, Jonah. Is there a focus or a, or a danger, I should say, for Jews being so focused on universal concerns that they lose their roots and their particularity? Yes, 100%, which is why I do this as a rabbi. I think, you know, what's delicious about the text you brought a minute ago is, of course, like everything else in Jewish tradition, the real takeaway is that it's inconclusive. <laughs> in other words, all of that is true. Right. It is true that it is the daily ritual commitments and actions we take that keep us Jewish. And it is true that there is this universal notion of all people being created in God's image that keeps us human. And I love about the, the rabbis that they just let you live in the complexity uh, of holding multiple truths. So that said, rightly, you point I'm the kind of rabbi who leans into that more universal kind of ground, right? Where there are other rabbis, and not just Orthodox, but Reform rabbis who lean more into the ritual grounding of why we're Jewish and let their, you know, the very deeply rooted particularism and, you know, may kind of apply that to some universal moments. But, you know, so that we're all kind of figuring it out for ourselves. What I would say is, to me, well, two things. One is we live in the world where we have to meet people where they are. So I think, and you know this very well, because you're at the front line, you know, with real people living in Boca Raton who are trying to live their lives. Many of them are raising kids, you know, they have jobs. And this is, you and I are having this inside conversation. This is not what gets them out of bed in the morning or what gets, but for some reason they walk into your building, right? Or they log on to your podcast or, you know, they, they, they're curious. And the question is why? And in some cases, it's because they're looking for meaning and purpose. They have a kid. They want to have that kid grow up with values, whatever. But I also know that many of them are struggling with the, the what's happening in the world around them. And they don't have deep Jewish grounding, but they have a sense that their Judaism should matter and should care about it. And they're looking to you, Dan Levin, to help make that connection, to say, I know I am outraged by the plague of gun violence, or I know 
this rollback of the rights of LGBT people or, or uh, abortion access is wrong. And I know that as a Jew. Now teach me why. Help me access my tradition to make sense of it. And I see this over and over again. Jews just show up so disproportionately in social justice spaces, and they start there. To me, the opportunity then is to leverage their the fact that they show up to pursue justice as Jews and then invite them into serious Jewish learning so that they understand where that Jewishness comes from. Last thing I'll just say is I think there's a specious distinction between a Jewish particularism or a Jewish universalism. To me, by nature, if you get knowledgeable, if you really read the sources, if you study, then of course you're going to apply that wisdom to the world around you. It isn't an either or. It's like study your text because if you study those texts that you've, you've been lifting up throughout this podcast, of course you're going to be concerned about the climate catastrophe or about racial injustice or about poverty because that's what the text teaches in addition to when you should have your sacrifices in the morning and the evening. I think you're, you're, you're so right that I think there's many people, there's an instinctive thing because of our Jewish culture, because of the ways in which you embrace Judaism by osmosis, that then says, teach me more. Help me to understand why this instinct that I have in me is fueled or informed by my Jewish heritage. I, I think that this, like everything, it's about balance. I'm reminded of a brilliant article by Rabbi David Wolpe called Social Justice for Moderns in this wonderful new online journal called Sapir, where he really sort of focuses on the idea that we have to figure out a balance between this particularism and universalism and the idea that if all we focus on is our particularity, that callousness is not what makes us Jewish. And if at the same time all we're focused on is our universality, we use that, we, we lose that sort of special magic sauce that is our Jewish sauce that makes us who we are. And the richness of the storehouse of Jewish wisdom that guides us in trying to figure out who we're supposed to be in the world. Jonah, this has been such a rich conversation, and I'm so grateful for you taking the time to be with us today. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboka.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast. <laughs>